0: Good evening. It's 9 p.m. on the West Coast, and you're tuned in to the ILEG Radio Show, coming at you live from the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley, broadcasting around the world on radio.ileducationgroup.org and ionglobalpolitics.com. Here's your host for the next hour, Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. You're having a wonderful Martin Luther King Jr. weekend officially tomorrow, but it's uh MLK weekend, a celebration of his legacy and work. That's yes, it's unfinished, but um, we have to remember the real message of MLK of Martin Luther King Jr. this weekend and and throughout the year. I want to play for you a a small clip right off the bat of of Martin Luther King Jr. and Willie really what encapsulates his, his message. The American people must rise up out of the evils of war, the evil of racism, and the evil of poverty. But I am constantly reminded of the fact that the war in Vietnam is only a symptom of international militarism, racism, and imperialism, and an unworkable capitalism that makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. That's Martin Luther King Jr. with his Vietnam speech. And that's the message that is often shoved under the table when we when we get the sanitized version of MLK we get the 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 advocate for racial equality but people often forget or they leave out in the mainstream media the real critique of militarism of capitalism of the gross economic inequality and and the real struggle for workers rights and for the poor he was uplifting the gospel message and so we have to remember that always remember that when we talk about martin luther king jr that he was very unpopular at the time he was very unpopular with the mainstream in in america as far as uh poll numbers It was around 70 percent unfavorable uh toward dr king at the time because he was opposing vietnam he was supporting workers rights he before he died he was Marching with sanitation workers, he was uh, going to do that, and you know he was on the forefront of these three evils: the racism, the militarism, and the, and the poverty that he that he spoke often about. So that's something important to to always remember. As far as uh, workers' rights, let's turn to some current day labor news. the The strike that that was going on in New York has ended. And a deal was struck with the nurses at two hospitals, one in the Bronx and one uh, at Mount Sinai. And the the, the nurses were really seeking better conditions for more staffing. They had already gotten the pay raise at 19.1% prior to the strike happening, but they were understaffed. They were overworked and burdened with... Too few uh, nurse, nurses per patient, and the only state in the nation that had a a ratio a legal uh, ratio set patient to nurse was California. Is, is California so they they achieved that and they got a a deal that helped them have more staffing. And there's there's a number of uh, reasons why nurses are so understaffed. Hospitals are so understaffed in this country right now, and. You get two two different answers. You get one, there's a nursing shortage. There's not enough nurses in the school in, in, in coming out of nursing schools. And, and, and on the other hand, you get that's what the hospitals are saying. And, and you get the other argument that's saying there are enough nurses, but the conditions are poor. There's not enough pay. So they go to traveling nursing um, outfits or they're going to some other uh, line of work that uses their nursing skills. I think there's probably an argument to be had for both sides. What can be said is that a lot of qualified nursing uh, applicants were have been turned away, 92,000 uh, recently in 2021. And that's because they don't have enough faculty, nursing faculty, uh, licensed uh, instructors to, to oversee in the nursing schools. So they've turned away a lot of nursing applicants from the from from undergrad and from graduate nursing programs that goes to funding there's there's not enough funding for education and like we're always talking about priorities there's just not enough funding going to education going to to healthcare uh, priorities uh, healthcare education I just saw an article in the Los Angeles Times and it's discussing uh, the overcrowding in South Central Hospital, MLK Hospital. That's of all days, uh, of all weekends for that article to come out. The the overcrowding of that hospital system in South South Los Angeles where people are being uh, housed or, or are being uh, treated in the gift shop, literally uh, makeshift tents waiting rooms that are like made with cubicles now. And they just have an influx of patients per unit time. It was like a hundred they were expecting. They get 400. And it's, it's a credit to the, the hospital staff, the nursing that people keep on coming back. The staffing are, are doing such a great job as far as treating them where they're at. Um, but it's, it's hectic. It's hectic. They're, they're out there treating them in the waiting rooms and the, and the, in the gift shops and it's really um a situation that shouldn't be happening in the United States in 2023 it shouldn't be happening in a developed country but it is and it's because of the mismatch mismatch priorities i want to i want to switch to uh, an interesting thing that i saw coming out of north carolina and it's at north carolina to get this right north carolina ant agricultural and technical university it's a it's an hbcu an historically black, black college and or, or university and i don't know if you saw this but an hbcu professor he sparked a social media debate uh, it raged across social media according to bet.com For a dress code that he put on the syllabus, he put a dress code on on the syllabus that said you can't wear hoodies in class, uh, bonnets uh, or bonnets bonnet in French bonnets in English, do rags, and three styles of shorts, which all meant the same thing, like really, really shorts. They're slang terms for really, really, uh, inappropriate, inappropriately short shorts. And he said, if you wear these, this cloth clothing to bed or to the nightclub, then don't wear it to class. And so basically he was, he, he had, he had put in their business casual, business casual. It's a computer science course. And he was accused of being anti-black. Of being anti-black, of targeting black students, even though it is a black university, HBCU, and get this, he is a black professor. So that was odd. That's that's odd. Forbes reported that the instructor is a black male computer science professor, North Carolina AT University. It did not name him, but social media named him. And Twitter users sharply criticized his dread. Dress code policy as anti black, while others defended it as a standard that will serve the students and their careers. Angry responses zeroed in on the shorts ban. This is giving anti black image typing, using the words uh, about the shorts, into a syllabus. So, I mean, what do you think? I mean, this, for, for when I saw this, I looked at this and said, Here's a professor that is just putting out a dress code that is trying to uplift uplift his students. He's an African American professor, with, in a predominantly black college, an HBCU, and he's trying to uplift his students. He's trying to uplift his students. And I don't, I don't, I didn't, uh, I didn't see anything wrong with it. I didn't see anything. Wrong with his 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 dress code, as some people thought that the hoodies was extreme. But a, a former student of his said that it was just don't wear your hood in class. Don't wear your hood in class. You can have a hood, but just don't wear it in your class. Like like a, like the Unabomber or or, or someone that's saying you no know, out jogging, have some decorum. Now someone who's worked in computer science or programming and software development, having basically taught myself uh, to give to have flexibility in my career and worked as an enterprise software developer and worked in both a large company and a, a small company. I worked from home, so you, you could wear whatever you want. But from what I've seen in the industry, first, not every software developer job is going to be having a, a lax dress code where you can wear hoodies, hoodies and, and sweatpants to work. Second of all, it's competitive out there. People think that programming is in demand, but there are a lot of programmers out there and it is competitive and not everybody's Mark Zuckerberg or a computer science genius. So uplifting oneself to to have a a business attire is is a good thing to get used to so i i think it's it's he's training his students to have a corporate uh business mentality because it's a computer science class and he wants them to be competitive you don't want to go to school for four years get a degree in computer science and and then not know how to uh, to get a job with in the field that that you want unfortunately It is a superficial world. People will judge you on your dress code and your appearance. You can't just show up in pajamas. So I I don't think that he went wrong in um, putting forth a dress code. Another thing is, as a former lecturer at a university, the syllabus is a contract between the professor and the student. When I make a syllabus, I'm saying these are the rules of the class. And if they're reasonable, which I think his was, were reasonable rules, then, you know, not anything outlandish, then there's nothing wrong with it. And if students don't like it, then they have the option to drop. There's always a grace period. There's a grace period of of several weeks when when a student looks at the syllabus and he says, well, I don't like this class. I don't like what's on it. I don't care for the professor. I don't care for the material. Well, I'm going to drop this class. I still have time to at another class. So it's a contract and it's really the, the professor's domain. And so he's saying, look here, these are the rules of the road. You wear business casual attire. These are the rules of the road. And for so many, and I went over the tweet and to see so many people objecting to that saying, I know I pay this much amount of money. I'll wear whatever I want. That tells me something. There's something deeper there. There's still something going on when there's so many thousands of, of, of comments objecting to a basic dress code. And especially coming from an African-American professor to African-American students who are saying, hey, look, this is a competitive world. This is a competitive country where you're, you're going to have to compete for, for scarce jobs ever more going forward with the economic out, outlook. And so I want to prepare you for what's out there i want to I want to prepare you so you can be successful and and, and make a decent living. Some people as i was as I was saying were, we're talking about well, I pay this much I pay that much amount of money three hundred dollars a credit or whatever the tuition is they are kind of reflecting the reality with the exorbitant amount of tuition with the student loans they are talking like consumers and that is exactly what the system the government has done over the decades going back to reagan they've turned education into a consumer affair it's not about a public service where education is providing a public service for a society we're going to educate you we're going to groom you fill your head with knowledge with the tools to to get get employment, but also to be a functioning citizen and a a critical thinking citizen in this society so you can make the society better. No, it's become, you know, we're going to teach you just this so you can get a job in this field, but you're going to pay through the roof and you're probably going to go into debt unless you come from a family, a wealthy family. And guess what? All the people that were showing up in the 60s and 70s that wanted to go to college to make the world a better place as well as get an education, who wanted to oppose war and oppose inequality and protested in, in the California university system at Berkeley and other campuses, that was systematically dismantled. It was systematically dismantled uh in order to put people into debt in the, in order to put people into debt and to uh to change a system where it wasn't about creating a whole person. it wasn't about creating people that will function within a a public service, but it was about creating a system people that were laden with debt so this country is always about intelligence short term intelligence where you can help industry. But not intellectualism, not critical intellect, and that's a important distinction. Where critical thinking is is really shoved to the side, critical intellect for short term intelligence. Why? Because everything is revolving around short term gain. You can see it in the foreign policy. You can see it in the domestic policy. It, it revolves around this quarter and next quarter, and. Meaning, this five fiscal quarter, next fiscal quarter, what can you do for us to create profit? And that's true whether you're in whether you're in computer science or or many other fields. Now, for those that are going into computer science, they think they're going to get a four-year degree and and come out the other end and have a a a great job. Some will, many won't. Even though there's a demand. There's, there, like I said, there's a lot of competition. I, I, like I said, I taught myself, but I also had, you know, a lot of schooling, graduate school, a PhD that went along with it. That I can't say that that didn't help me when I showed up for a software job. Here's a guy that taught himself, you know, algorithms and programming, and also has has, uh, you know, a PhD and is well rounded in many other areas. But coming out of computer science, uh, of a degree for computer science, I think students will will find themselves surprised that the type of work that they get is not the type of work that they did when they were students. Programming as a student, you know, you do projects you like. You do projects that that are interesting, that fulfill you when you are programming for a company, you are programming to make them money. You are programming as kind of a conveyor belt to pump out code to make sure that their product is profitable. And so it's monotonous. It's not something that's gonna be creative most of the time, there are exceptions, but most of the time I believe it's gonna be monotonous because you're doing somebody else's project, you're doing someone else's work, a company's work to make them money. I mean, that's fine if you just want a nice paycheck. If you're 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 successful in coming out of a, a computer science uh, program and you want a nice paycheck in your twenties and early thirties. But guess what? That type of work, that type of 10 hour a day work pumping out other people's code is not going to be fulfilling for the long term. And many programmers go into management and they go into uh, the business side of it, and they go into uh, project management and other areas to use their tech skills, and that requires often a suit and a tie and not a hoodie and, uh, you know, pajamas. (laughs) So, I mean, whether one thinks they're just going to be a programmer or not, I mean, I'm sure that 22-year-old coming out of... School may, some of them may still want to, may want to be pumping out endless lines of code when they're, when they're 35 or 40 or 50, but many won't, and many will be tired of that and don't want the long hours and want something more relaxed when they have a family, they're getting older, they want something, uh, a little bit less crazy and that's the, that's entering the corporate world, whether they think they're, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and a social network or not. And that's the reality, unless you start your own business and, and do your own thing. And so this professor is just teaching them, hey, don't show up in like you're going to the nightclub. Don't show up to with, with a do-rag or a, or a bonnet or, or like you're, you're with your pajamas on to class and especially at an HBCU where uh, where where the African-American population is a historically oppressed minority in this country. So I agree with the professor doing that. I, I think it's a good idea. It's But it really goes to a larger issue. And I think the larger issue that we can extract from this is the consumer nature of education. And the blame really goes on to the system that has put these exorbitant tuition prices on education and saddled people with a lot of debt with tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands for medical school or law school dollars of debt. And now uh, president Biden had put forth his plan to cut down some of that debt to limit like 10 or 20,000 in some cases, a dollars uh, of, of debt. Forgive that for, for certain people with federal loans, but it's currently tied up with the U.S. Supreme Court. Six Republican-led states uh, and two student loan debtors have brought these two legal challenges for President Biden's uh, $400 billion debt relief plan, which promised to provide $20,000, as I said, $20,000 in in debt forgiveness to more than 40 million Americans with federal college loans. The United States has $1.75 trillion of student debt. It roughly uh, amounts to about 7.5% of the country's GDP. It wasn't always this way. David A. Love, a faculty member in journalism at Rutgers University, wrote an article published in the Washington Post December 29, 2022, entitled, America's Student Loan Crisis Stems from a War on Education as a Public Good. And this article details the historical background of how we got here. I encourage you to check it out. Tuition used to be free or nearly free and very affordable before the 1960s. During the 1960s, the government funding for these institutions began to decrease, to fall. in in a a significant way, uh, resulting in the current system that we have. And it came about when conservatives waged an ideological war against uh, publicly funded colleges and universities that had become really a place for social activism that we saw during the 60s against the Vietnam War and and for other causes. If free and low-cost college was normalized, when Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, signed the Morrill Act of 1862, which provided land grants for states to establish public colleges and universities, and then, of course, you had the GI Bill after World War II, that gave free, uh, covered tuition and expenses for veterans for college or trade school. And in the post-war era, college college enrollment increased dramatically because of federal student grants and and loans through the 1958 National Defense Education Act and the expansion of federal financial aid and work study programs for low income students with the 1965 Higher Education Act. So there was there was a lot of, there's a lot of history of there of having education as a public service providing free or low cost education but that changed in the 1960s as a result of the the civil rights movement going on to the campuses. And student activists demanded more equitable environments and more students of color being admitted and affirmative action policies came into being. And the overwhelmingly white white, uh, student bodies began to transform. So conservatives responded by cutting funds for public education. And this affected working class and, and low-income people. And Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, really made this uh, a, a central part of his... He was central in, in this whole process of cutting, cutting funding to the University of California system. And he and for the first time, in, in-state students paid tuition as well as fees. And education became a political issue. It it left the realm of being a public service and it became a political issue. The free speech movement was formed on the UC Berkeley campus, uh, challenged campus policies against uh, political protest and free speech. The student movement was later motivated by the Vietnam War, as I said. You had Malcolm X's assassination. Uh, You had the Black Panthers in Oakland. And you had San Francisco State staging a the longest strike in nineteen sixty eight, leading to the birth of an ethnic studies program. So you 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 really start to see education diversify and affirmative action, which is now being challenged, admissions policies in the in the Supreme Court. But you really saw campuses start to reflect a more diverse student body and with that came the pushback. With the activism and the diversity came the pushback. When student bodies became more reflective of 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 societies around them and you had ethnic studies and you had uh, more more people of color in in at universities going to college then they said, well, let's we don't want we want to eliminate or make it more difficult for this to flourish. And so we'll fight back through the purse. We'll put these people into debt, low income, even though there's a lot of poor whites that, that get saddled with debt. And we will we'll squelch this. We'll squelch this. Uh, people will be so worried about their pocketbooks, their debt that they won't have time to protest and think about the world and think about you know creating a better world of free speech or equality or the the gross economic inequality or, or the wars overseas it'll just be limited but this won't be we'll have, we won't have this the 1960s repeated and by and large they were successful in, in creating student apathy Not everywhere, because, you know, I was a student activist when I was in college and we held protests and I organized protests and there were protests against the Iraq war and against the Israeli occupation of the Palestinians and the war in Afghanistan and for farm workers. I was extremely active, went to school, was an activist full time. But, you know, that's that's more of the exception. That's not the the masses of students. Uh, and I and I've seen that as an educator, it's it's not the masses of students, you know. I, there are, there are other factors with that, but that is a big factor. They they made college into something of a consumer affair, where the student is paying a lot of money or going to debt, and this is a consumer transaction, and they're the customer. And this leads all back. This all leads back to hey, when a professor puts something that I don't like customer is always right. And that's why you see thousands. I believe that's one of the reasons why you see thousands of comments complaining about a professor at an HBCU, an African-American professor to a predominantly African-American student body, giving a simple dress code to help their students, to uplift the students. And you see students pushing back saying, hey, I'm the customer. The customer is always right. Uh, you really see the the consumerism that has taken over education. Not to say that there's not great students and, and, and great professors out there, but I think the general trend is too many think of it as a transaction of a, a customer, or consumer, and this is why you get the pushback of, hey, I'll don't, i I'll do what I want. I'm paying this much amount of money. I'm going to debt. So there doesn't need to be a dress code, even though the, I believe in this case the professor has the interests of his students at heart. I saw an update on on social media. One person, I don't know if it's true or not, they said it was removed from the syllabus. Uh, so so there you go. The customer is always right in the corporate consumer world in the United States. So I think it needs a whole rethinking of what education is about. and And that's what we've just begun to touch on is the approach to education. When you have students reacting as consumers and laden with debt and an exorbitant amount of tuition, and faculty underfunded, the investments aren't being made into education because they become a profit-making corporate-type venture. And what really needs to change is we need to go back to where it was a public service, with free or low-cost college being the norm, where, where it used to be, but, with the modern day inclusivity of a diverse student body, with a robust conversation on campus that promotes ideas and the full education of 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 the student. So that's what we're we're getting at and touching on in, in this show on this MLK weekend, which which is the core of MLK's dream and philosophy of addressing the militarism the poverty and the racism, the three evils. And you really can only do that through education. And if I come around this from a a roundabout way, that is the point. The point is that to solve those problems, people need to change their minds. People need to be informed where they're uninformed. And they need to be educated, not just on one aspect of, I'm going to become a businessman, I'm going to study business, but uh, the education of the whole human being, of history, of the arts of literature of ideas of philosophy and critical thinking to care about making the country and the world a better place so we're out of time but that's that's the message and that's the inspiration people need to be inspired and the best place to inspire people you can be inspired anywhere but one of the central places in a society is the is the school is the academic campus to inspire minds to Make the world a better place. Until next time, as always, keep the faith. You're listening to the ILEG radio show with Dr. Paul F. J. Aranyas. Broadcasting live on radio.ileducationgroup.org and I on globalpolitics.com.